Hello, it's That Stack of Books. I'm Nancy Pearl at Bryant Corner Cafe, along with... Steve Scher. Laura Corby. Noah Racy. Susan Fort. Roz. Keith. Robin. Katie Sewell. Christine Fairchild. Christy James. Jennifer. And, and a bunch of books. Jennifer brought a, a lot, a mess, not a lot, several, <laughs> several wonderfully, wonderful books that maybe Jennifer could start. The only book that I would say, which I think we might have mentioned in an earlier podcast, is the, the terrific biography of Eleanor Roosevelt by Blanche Wisen Cook. And I have to say, if you have not read that book... Jennifer, <laughs> Laura, if you have not read that book, that is an amazing biography. Why is that such a great book? Because it looks at Eleanor Roosevelt and recognizes what a, what a complex woman she was and how much ahead of her time she was and at the same time how hemmed in um, she was by the circumstances of her time and how she managed to make a life with, um, with everything that, she w- that was forced upon her and that she chose for herself. And, you know, you sort of wonder if she had been born in the 21st century, you know, what she might have done. She was a pretty amazing woman and, and uh, in the hands of a really capable biographer like Blanche Wisencook, who is a feminist, um, I, I think we get a picture of her. I, I certainly, when I read it, got a picture of her that uh, that has just been, you know, indelible in my mind. You know what she would have done? She would have kept her personal email account and her pu- professional email account separate. That's what she would have done. She would have abide, She would have played by the same rules as everybody else and not caused all this trouble. You know what else she would have done? She would have been down um, at, at the marching, going across, uh, you know, the Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama. I mean, she would have done that. I think that that something that she never really forgave her husband for was the internment of the Japanese during World War II. And I think she really, she, you know, was a very strong proponent of um, racial equality. I mean, I don't want to make her into this, you know, like, you know, like that she had no flaws or anything. But, you know, for her time and the kind of uh, upbringing that she had and that mother-in-law, her mother-in-law was just... I mean, the stories one could tell about Franklin's mother, who, remember, moved to Cambridge so she could be there when he went to Harvard. I I don't even think you should say for her time, because she was somebody who transcended her time in a lot of ways, I think. Yeah. Um, Why did you bring all these books? Did you bring all these? I brought these. What what was your... uh, So you heard that it was going to be about Women's History Month, and you said, oh... People need to know about these books. So give it to us. <laughs> well, I just like reading about women in different times, different experiences, different cultures. And like you were talking about, just somebody who I just find so fascinating and interesting. And Zora Neale Hurston is one of those women that I just find amazing. And she was a writer, an anthropologist, a poet, and um, so if you want to read her autobiography, it's Dust Tracks on the Road, but the beautiful piece of fiction that is one of my favorite books in the universe is Their Eyes Were Watching God. And you just read it and you just stop at some of the images that she creates. I just couldn't in a million years, and they're just so breathtaking, and they're just so lovely. And even though the story is not you would think it's it's you know enmeshed in poverty and there's some abuse and just different things happen, but the the loveliness of the imagery and the storytelling of it um, is just it just was breathtaking to me. So Zora Neale Hurston is one of my favorite women. Um, then moving up in time, Maxine Hong Kingston, the Woman Warrior. Same thing. It's a memoir. It's a uh, weaves in. Um, fables, it weaves in um, just different kinds, it, it bends a lot of genres um, and there's a lot of controversy uh, when it was written because um, some of the men in the Asian American writers were saying that it was um, disrespectful of Chinese culture and that she was just giving more ammunition um, to 
Americans and others who were already critical um, of the Chinese, but she was just saying this was my experience. For what it is, just this is my experience, my family. She goes, I'm not trying to say that this is how all Chinese are, but um, it's just a fascinating, it works on so many levels, and I think they're reading it a lot now in schools because it does work on, from a sociological, cultural, anthropological, uh, feminist, um, and just from a genre point of view, it's just really interesting. So that's Maxine Hong Kingston. Then she did do China Men, I think, so you can get that perspective too. And then one that I have not read yet, so I wanted to bring one that I wanted to read, so I asked the uh, folks in my office, and we have a volunteer who is a vet, and she said she really found very profound, love my rifle more than you, young and female in the U.S. Army, and um, by Kayla Williams. So I have not read this yet. Apparently Nancy has, so she can talk more about it. But um, it just says, uh, um, brave, honest, and necessary. But so that's, I guess, is the, um, what I'm looking for is, what are they telling me that is necessary? What is it that, what is a voice that has not been given voice to before? What am I experiencing that I have not heard of before? And doing it in a beautiful way. So I don't know this particular book, but I brought the one I want to read, and then I brought two that I have read and would encourage anybody else to read. What do you know about What, what do you know about that book? Well, uh, Love My Rifle More Than You uh, was one of the very first books by um, a woman soldier in Iraq. And it really, um, it, you know, it, it, as Jennifer said, it gives a perspective that we hadn't read before. When she finished that, she married a fellow soldier, um, and he came home with um, brain damage. And she wrote a second book with him, um, which is called Plenty of Time When We Get Home, Love and Recovery in the Aftermath of War. And, you know, I mean, they're just very heartfelt, very interesting books about, about um, that situation that we don't get a lot of. Um, I'm going to ask about Women's History Month since you all thought about it, but is there, is, uh, in the books you're reading, but is Women's History Month doing for our attention to women in writing and history that Black History Month is doing? Well, you know, I mean, just from a, from a, just from a kind of readerly point of view, I, I don't like those months that we set aside as though, as though that's the only time we should read books by African Americans, or this is the only time we should read poetry because April is National Poetry Month. I mean, oh, I would. Let me write that down. <laughs> I would like. Um, I mean, I, I would like people to read books by African Americans twelve months of the year, and books by women twelve months of the year. And you know, we're going to have a Hispanic American Month. Well, let's just read those books and and not not do so much slicing and dicing, but just embrace the diversity and and uh, see what's out there. We're so narrow. Well, I agree with you, except that without focusing attention, the dominant culture dominates, and other voices get subsumed. That Thomas. is... <laughs> <laughs> but we need to change the dominant culture. And the dominant culture has been... I mean, there are so many areas where the dominant culture has been you know, moving, um, you know, gay marriage, that's a movement in the dominant culture, for example. You know, are, are we going to have, yes. you know? Yes, we yeah. are. Right. We are, because the, if we don't highlight, then people, then people fall by the wayside just because of the worms in our head, Nancy, that take us in one direction and not the other. Um. I guess my hesitation about having the different months is people saying, oh, I read that for Black History Month, therefore I know black culture. And that was what Maxine Hong Kingston is saying here. I am not trying to represent Chinese culture. And so I think when there's school curriculums and they'll, you know, pick this, okay, now you know the Hispanic point of view. It's not. It's one individuals of a multiplicity of people. And so I think that's why answer your point of it has to be woven in every perspective has to be woven into every dialogue because you can't just 
pick a month or pick one work in the syllabus or something like that and say, okay, now I claim to know something about that culture because that author would be horrified to think that they're supposed to be representing um, when there's a myriad of experiences, whether you know urban or rural and different classes and different educational. I mean, there's just so many experiences and and people thinking they know a little bit and thinking that people knowing a little bit and thinking that represents the culture is almost more dangerous than people not knowing anything and being open to all the experiences. So um, that's my soapbox. That's your take. Anybody, anybody want to get up on the soapbox before I go around? <laughs> what do you read? You know, speaking of people, women of power, women who took power, what, what are you reading? Laura. Well, actually, I, I read this book a while ago, and when I saw the topic, I thought of this book because I enjoyed it so much. It's Dorothy Simpson Bullet, An Uncommon Life by Delphine Haley. And one of the reasons I liked it so much is I grew up in Seattle, and my grandparents were here. And when you read her story, and she just died, passed away in the 80s, and what she saw change in just one life is just really fun to read, and it made me see the city in kind of a new way. You know, because she talks about parking her horse where Eddie Bauer was downtown and tying it up, and I mean, just there's just been so much change. And um, and really a, a remarkable person. It starts out talking about how she used to play marbles with the kids, and she'd always win because she was the only girl playing, and she'd win. And and she really liked ice cream sodas, so she would take her winnings and she she went to the soda shop and she worked out a deal with the man running it where he, she opened up her first line of credit and she also negotiated to be able to mix her own sodas and that was just when she was a kid and and then you know later on she went on to have you know massive real estate deals and radios and all kinds of stuff but i just thought it was a great book and close to home yeah, yeah. You know, and, and you reminded me of a book that I had actually, I interviewed the author here just two weeks ago, and I, I haven't put the interview out yet, but it's called 1125 Harvard East, and it's about her sister-in-law, uh, Catherine, uh, how does she, Catherine Squire Mueller Bullet. So she married Stimson Bullet. So Stimson Bullet was the brother of, of Dorothy Bullet. And 1125 East is on Harvard, and it's a big house that they bought back in the 50s on a big piece of land. And they have had political picnics, family gatherings, launching of political careers at this space. This, it, it, that's the Stimson Green Mansion? No, no, no. Oh, this is, a, this is another house. But it, this house, 1125 Harvard Avenue East by Sam Sperry is the book. Um, is the name of the book by Sam Sperry. This house is also going to be... Uh, a public space when she passes away. She's still alive. She's in her 90s. And, and that she has been this person who has gathered people to this place. Uh, Mike Lowry, I mean, politicians like Mike Lowry, but also pushing lots of civil rights activities in, in, in the South. She helped organize people that went to the South, but also people in Seattle that were engaged and she wasn't an organizer she was just an organizer she was there she was a presence made her home available and invited people to share their ideas and share the space so another leader another kind of leader she's a fascinating woman so that was a pretty cool book 1125 harvard avenue east i think he published it small press but available Noah, what are you reading any are you reading any books by or about women for this month you just sat down, so I'm just going <laughs> to... Yeah, no, I, I got, I got uh, ambushed by this podcast, but gladly. Um, but I, I, I'm, I'm of a mind of... I think I'm of a mind with Nancy in that um, this is such a unique time right now for, for us as humans as far as what we're learning about ourselves. I'm seeing things posted on Facebook on a regular basis about real black history. And they're astounding. Like it's it's amazing how much we didn't hear about in in the history, and it's you know due to it being suppressed. And and you have to have certain vehicles for promotion to get these ideas out. And so this month idea, I think, is is indicative of our time right now. We need these little things that are that are ads. But if you think bigger, I agree. I, I think I think it's a little bit silly that we're going to have one time that women should be thought of, and one time that but. It's, it's of right now, and, and I think it's, it's how we ask each other to pay attention. Um, I'm, I, I, it's funny, my mind keeps drifting back to um, 
to uh, She's Come Undone. What was Wally, Wally Lamb, Lamb, right? And everybody was saying, oh, he just writes for women so well. And I got angrier and angrier and angrier as I heard this over and over again. I was like, no, he writes for human beings well. He's charted the topography of someone's inner emotional life and what she goes through beautifully. But why am I able to connect to it? It's got nothing to do with owning ovaries. It has nothing to do, I mean, it, what it was indicative of was someone being controlled by men or having the influence of men on her life. But the emotional landscape, I was just, I found myself chafing at that. Like the distinction that a writing is more prescient because it's emotional and that it has more to do with, I don't know. I, I found myself bunched up in that and, and I didn't know how to really put voice to it. I don't even know how it pertains to this month, but the distinction of one writing being one or the other. Um, and what these women did when they wrote was not to become something grandiose and otherworldly. They wrote simply what it was truly to be alive and almost like lessened the grandiosity of, of, of I'm going to be a I'm going to be a vocal you know proponent of this. They just wrote purely and honestly of what it meant and and what it felt like to exist. Um, and I think that's an important thing thinking about these big things like a month for this or or these women were what they shaped or what they accomplished was they spoke honestly. That's it, and that's huge. But that's it, it, the to me that's that's where my mind has gone with this sitting. Human. This, that stack of books could be about human history year, human history and literature year, so we don't step too closely into one box or another. Good idea. All Let's right. do it. Right. Are you reading anything? Oh, yes. Um, actually, Susan. No, you're not, because I'm supposed to. Wow, on stereo. Um, no, I, I just, the one comment I was thinking about labeling different months is that it's kind of a nice device for bookstores and libraries to actually promote and you know so it kind of helps the people behind the scenes push things which anyway but in terms of what I've been reading I just read a book that certainly not history but it's called Afterbirth by Alyssa Albert and it's kind of a very dark view of what it's like to give birth and um, I think it's actually sort of something like it hasn't really been done because it shows how especially in this kind of pro-parenting period where people are so consumed with their kids this is about the really dark side of giving birth the isolation the physical you know hardship on your body and you know all the negative feelings and emotions you have and even though my youngest is 37 i was right back there in a minute and so <laughs> anyway wow. that that's about it that's an intense book that's a good book that's part of the humanity that we we need to read right so i'm Roz, and thinking about um well-known women or important women and what i'd read recently i read invention of wings by sumont kid um which is based on two real women called the Grimke sisters who grew up in a slave owning it's fiction but it, they grew up they are real women who grew up in a slave holding home in Charleston South Carolina and the older one at age 10 was given a slave as her birthday present and she refused which was a very strong-minded odd thing to do at the time but her mother insisted she had to take her and so she did, but she didn't treat her like everyone else in the house was treating slaves. And her father was kind of for this, but he also wouldn't really defend her in the end. And then her younger sister completely refused to take her slave on her 10th birthday. And these girls grew up to become um, Quakers, rabid abolitionists, and then uh, feminists and promoted women's rights. And um, this was getting the period of time, but early 1900s, I believe. So it was, um, they were really pioneers in their th thinking and in their deeds, and they just lived that out for the rest of their lives. It was pretty amazing. So this was a, this was a book that was fiction, this fictionalized from historical records. Correct, so it's historical fiction, right. 
So, you know, that's, that, that brings up one of the things that I've always felt, and I, I think I read somewhere that somebody said that fiction can tell the truth while history tells the facts. And, I, you know, we, we, I, I, always want, I always thought if I went out and got a, a doctorate in history that I would have done my dissertation on learning history via fiction. And it's that kind of book, I think, that's so valuable that people who, who come to it will, not expecting um, a textbook or anything like that, will, will get so much from it that's so important. And I, so, I mean, historical fiction, I don't think we give enough kudos to historic, to, to, that good historical fiction is really so valuable. And, uh, and it's undervalued. Oh, that sounds like an amazing book, too, because it's a history that we haven't heard at all. Right. It's a, it, it is truly an amazing book. And it, as you say, it's fiction, and it reads easily. But, um, you know, you can fact check things to see. So it, it is a well-done book. And then another, I have two more, another fiction book was written by a Gullah woman called Daughters of the Dust. And I heard it was a movie but she wrote the book after the movie so there's more in it and it is a wonderful book um it's a great movie <laughs> yeah so i haven't seen the movie but my book club read the book and um that's what got me on pat conroy which you know the water is wide and the whole thing because it overlaps that story but this is fiction and it's an amazing story and now i visited those places and um it's worth reading and then Wait, on before you go on so keith you you've seen the movie I've seen parts of the movie. I remember, I remember when it came out and not being able to see it, but I have seen parts of it um, by when it was on t uh, television on PBS. So the author was getting her PhD in New York, but her father was Gullah, and so she went back and did research for this book and looked for his family and people that they talked about. Um, but then uh, a biography... I guess autobiography of Sonia Sotomayor, My Beloved World, is also a wonderful book. And goes through her time as a judge. It doesn't talk about, she doesn't talk about her time on the Supreme Court. That's probably another book later down the line, if she can write it at all. Um, but a fascinating, you know, growing up, beating the odds. Um, she grew up in the Bronx in a tenement. And... Um, you know, grandmothers were important and kind of got her through, and education was important to her family. Her mother had no money at all, but she did pay for education for the kids. And so it's just a, it's an amazing story to know a background of a Supreme Court justice and um, yeah. a woman who was strong and made it. So yeah, I've heard about that book too. I mean, that's, that's the only thing is that these, oh, Women's History Month, it does get us thinking. Get us, gets, us, gets our attention. It's like getting a brick set outside of your head sometimes. <laughs> um, just one point to go back to Nancy's uh, discussion of historical fiction not getting enough credit, it being able to tell the story that the facts can't sometimes. Um, speaking of Women's History Month, and I didn't bring Harriet Beecher Stowe, Uncle Tom's Cabin, because I know how, I mean, we all know how racist that is. But in the time it was written, which was, what, 1855 or 1860, um, it did reach people that whatever facts were going on about slavery, the, it reached people that, that weren't being reached by the newspapers, weren't being reached by anything else. It went to, uh, over to England, became a bestseller. I think it sold more books than the Bible. And apparently Lincoln said to her, so you're the little lady that started this great big war. So, I mean, you just can't speak any more highly. But, and, I'm not going, trying to cut down all the other contributions of all the other things that went on to create that war, but just to say the impact that literature has um, to tell a story in a way that other avenues sometimes don't, and it can um, make significant changes. Do you think that could? Do you think that could ever happen now? That a book could. Uh, I mean, I'm thinking like um, Upton Sinclair's uh -huh, the, meat uh, the packing yeah. and the meat packing industry. I mean, could could there be a book? It, it, does does literature have that power? Salman Rushdie. Salman Rushdie. That's exactly what I was thinking. 
Yeah, but right, Salman Rushdie's um, uh, satanic verses that brought about the fatwa against him. But is there something that I mean? I'm just trying to think of what could change the world for the better, <laughs> or, or or make us think. If you think about like somebody like Michael Moore, you see some of those things in film and other audio or audiovisual media less so than 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 books these days but he also does write some write books that back up some of the things that he he puts out i think also the the rate of in dissemination of information that we have now that that Beatrice Stowe's novel being put in print and, and passed literally hand to hand and what like how sheet music I mean how information was moved at that time we have so much information now we're we're just completely overwhelmed by the amount of things you can get with one click it's can we it's almost like there was more homogenized thought or the rate at which we processed stuff back then was was much much slower and and wasn't asked to move any faster but there's so many at every different turn there's a new fight there's a new something that someone's pointing out as you must hear this you must you know and can it be could it be that that powerful could you know could something come in that that is that drastically off asking for that much more i don't know and the the, the what is the uh, tehran um the, the the woman who wrote from you mean Persepolis? No, 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 the, not the, the woman writing. Um, oh, now I'm gonna. The young girl, or the yeah, in in, in the Middle Malaya? East, she wrote from. Um, no, it was it was yeah. before Malaya came on. Uh, something in Tehran. Um, now it's. Oh, reading Lolita. Reading. Reading Lolita. By yeah, yeah. I like for its area. I think what blew a hole through. You know how people were there, but. But I don't know. I guess I'm just answering or touching on what you asked, Nancy. It was, is it possible for something to do that now? Yes. Yes. I'm going to end with that. Thank goodness. Yes, it is. What are you reading? Um, well, not what I'm reading now, but I would say uh, the last books that I remember reading that were by women authors weren't nonfiction. They were either historical fiction. I definitely agree with Nancy's comments. Uh, um, uh, some of the ones by Philippa uh, Gregory, The White Queen, and uh, historical fiction uh, dealing with back in the, the Tudor or pre-Tudor um, times in England and just a different perspective on a piece of history that you think you know very well, uh, but from a, a, a different slant. And then two other authors that I like to come back to uh, over and over again, uh, Margaret Atwood and Faye Weldon. And Faye Weldon, I just really enjoy her twisted <laughs> sensibility and how she will, uh, the most recent one was um, Habits of the House, which is kind of Downton Abbey where people are, where everybody behaves badly. <laughs> and she just you know goes it and follows it, but in the same sort of polite English way, but following all the, people not behaving nobly and well Keith have you ever read Muriel Spark I mm -hmm. see I think you would like Muriel Spark um, a lot the prime of Miss Jean Brody is one but the one that has always been my favorite is called a far cry from Kensington set right after World War II and I think you would enjoy that kind of snark well, she wouldn't have called it a snarky voice at that time because they didn't have that word. But that kind of, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> cynical, cynical, the cynicalness of um, of that. I think you would love A Far Cry from Kensington. That's a wonderful novel. Katie, what are you reading for Women's History Month? Well, I just finished The Color Purple last week. I didn't read it for Women's History Month. I just read it because it was on the shelf and I'd never read it but I enjoyed it. It's really hard for me to picture how it would be a Broadway musical. On the cover it said, now a Broadway musical. It was an old edition, but I, maybe you know, you're a dancer, right? <laughs> These are my people. I'm, I'm, I make a living in musicals. So um, yeah, it's, it's, it's 
what they do with musicals now is, I think that's, that's what you're pointing towards. It's not Oklahoma, it's not Gigi in any shape or way or form, <laughs> but it, it takes what we know about offering music and, and text and, and lyric and, and scenes and presents an amazing story. They, they did a really good job. They did a really, really good job. And musicals, check them out because they, they're doing a lot of stuff like that. Well, it is a book about becoming happy despite your circumstance, I yeah. think. If, any, if I had to say it was about anything, that's what it seemed like to me. But what do you think, Nancy? You've read that book, right? I have read that book, but I, but I was thinking um, when, when, when uh, Steve asked you what you were reading for National uh, Women's History Month, I was thinking, well, well, Katie, you went through this whole period where you were reading Louisa May Alcott, and uh, you, know, you can't sort of do better. There was Louisa May Alcott right in the center, uh, her family, Bronson Alcott, and and uh, you know, Little Women is kind of a cl as classic a, a woman's mm -hmm. coming of age. I'm really always in Women's History Month. I tend to read women authors more than I do male authors. Human History Month. Yeah. Every month we use Human History Month. That's right. Robin, what'd you bring? Well, I brought a couple of history books, but I wanted to make a, a couple comments first. One on uh, Women's History Month because I just, I, maybe I'm a pluralist, but um, I view these, uh, these two books of women's history also as American history and part of world history and the story of humankind. So I'm kind of on, on that, <laughs> maybe on that end of the spectrum in terms of having special months and days, although I appreciate the chance to look back at these because there's been a designated month. And in terms of Blanche Wees and Cook, I had a second, uh, Nancy's recommendation of that biography of Eleanor Roosevelt is just sweeping. And uh, Eleanor Roosevelt did so much to bring civil rights and that struggle to the attention of many in the country, although her husband, uh, FDR, wasn't as receptive, but she tried to get him to push uh, for an anti-lynching law, among other things, and Congress just refused to, if you can imagine that, Congress at the time, it was brought up several times and they wouldn't even consider it. And uh, she also is responsible for uh, Marian Anderson singing at the Lincoln Memorial in 1939 after the DAR refused to let her sing in their headquarters. So she was, uh, you know, she's so courageous and then did so much after the war in terms of the UN. But a couple Robin, of, did you just say, if you can imagine Congress not passing a lynching law? Yeah. I can imagine that. This is the same Congress that's working hard to, to abrogate yeah. voting rights. And yeah, it's the same powers. Yeah, I think it's, uh, well, you have one party that's uh, the party of Jefferson Davis now, I think. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it's, uh, it just goes on and on, doesn't it? But I brought in a couple books, and this one I just learned about. I heard about the midwife's tale, but I was always thinking of that novel. But this is a, a history. It's uh, by Laurel Thatcher Ulrich, a historian called The Midwife's Tale, The Life of Martha Ballard, based on her diary, 1785 to 1812. And she was a midwife. And what the historian, uh, Dr. Ulrich, does in this book is take excerpts from uh, Martha Ballard's diary and then expands in each chapter from those excerpts on the context uh, of that time. And uh, it's just fascinating. It has a, it's a great way to take somebody's journal or diary entries and then write about the history. Uh, both, um, this is a post-revolutionary war, the Constitution up through the War of 1812. And She's talking about treating these women in Maine. So you get a picture of Maine at the time and this village she's living in. And the historian expands on that and also gives you a sense of the context of what's going on in this new nation at the time. So I thought it was really a fascinating approach to history. And even for people, Betsy picked this up, my wife, and said, boy, I really want to read this. This is really a great way to do history. And uh, and then the second book I wanted to mention is How It Feels to Be Free. This is by uh, historian Ruth Feldstein, and this is about black women entertainers and the civil rights movement. And she focuses on uh, Lena Horne, as well as uh, Nina Simone, Marion McKeeba, Abby Lincoln, 
Diane Carroll and Cicely Tyson and how each of them had a role in the civil rights movement. And they may be, I think they certainly are overlooked in terms of their contributions in that way. And most of them uh, were giving voice to the struggle as well as uh, uh, evolving in terms of how they performed during that time. And the focus probably mostly on the 50s and 60s. And, and um, I thought it was a, another fascinating way to do history. Yeah, I, that sounds really fascinating. One of the things that um, I encountered on this trip to the South that I took this last week yeah. uh, was, well, two things. One, how many women were leaders at, as foot soldiers were the leaders, were the, form, were the formative force, kind of get a little bit overlooked, overwritten out. But I've been thinking a lot about how art shaped our evolution mm -hmm. of civil, our civil rights evolution. And those artists, of course, are right at the forefront of that. We went to the Stax uh, Museum, the oh, yeah. Stax Record oh, yeah. House, where uh, so many artists mm -hmm. that that were unknown but were having an impact all the way on radio all the way in the 50s and 60s, all the way up to Otis Redding, who was their big, their big star who gave Stax a lot of financial foundation. But it gets me thinking about how all of us of that era, that age, how much of our views were changed and, and uh, widened because we invited those artists into our homes. That's one of the reasons why so many of the people were so afraid of that, that music, right? Because it had so much power, and those performers had so much power. There they were, in our homes, as people, singing to us, singing revolutionary things sometimes, like Nina Simone, like yeah. those folks. I just throw that out. Do you want to weigh in on that? No, just turn me down for a second so I can see your stuff. Oh, you're down. No, I'm done talking. Christine, what are you reading? Well, um, I might be a little different. I'm, I'm here because I'm cheating. I'm looking for things to read. And um, I've spent a lot of the last eight years uh, doing elder care. Uh, Mother-in-law's got dementia, so I only ever read doctor's notes or um, manuscripts for fellow authors because I'm an editor and author. Um, so reading for fun is something that has been so rare in the last few years. Um, but I do occasionally, I get to do research. So Women's Month, I'm, I don't have a problem with that. I think it puts a spotlight on a certain area of literature. There's lots of areas of literature. We'll never cover them all. Occasionally a spotlight here or there, like you said, is good for bookstores. But I think it also helps us be more economical with our time and our attention. And when we're limited in attention, oh, it's Women's History Month. Okay, I'll read a, a women's book this month. It just helps kind of spur us into... Um, something that's more interesting. So I don't, I don't really mind that we do that. Um, it's just like Hallmark holidays. You never think it's broken up. Um, but so I'm really excited to hear all these great books. But as an author and editor, I, I do get to do the research, and I, I'm very fascinated um, with uh, books that are historically set. So I love historical fiction. Um, I think it's a really important genre for us because most people don't want to sit down and write a, read a history book. Uh, it's sorry, but those of us here at the table who will do it are the rare bird uh, in the publishing industry is just not as common. Um, so historical fiction kind of bridges that gap for a lot of readers to get the, the, the history out of it. Um, but my favorite third option is to read autobiographies. Um, I had this great history teacher in college who um, uh, taught us to learn history from first-hand evidence, first and second-hand evidence as much as possible. So she would bring in objects from history, like um, during the Civil War, she brought us an object she had found in a trunk she bought at an antique store, and it was literally the cloak of a Ku Klux Klan person with very brown, dark stains going down the front that everybody assumed was blood, and she tried to pass it around the class no one would touch it. She went row to row, nobody would have anything to do with that garment. And that kind of firsthand evidence is really stimulating to our mind. And so me, for me, the closest is autobiography. So right now I've been going back to an autobiography uh, by a Russian princess um, in World War II 
who uh, escaped to Germany with her family only to get caught in the war. Um, but because of her family's standing, the Germans allowed her and family members to work in service for the government as long as they, quote, you know, pledged allegiance, end quote. So she turned out to be loosely related to the whole underground movement um, and the attempted assassination of Hitler. So it's really fascinating to read her account because it's a story form like um, historical fiction would be, but yet it's got the facts of a history book. So it's that in-between. So I think that that's a really great angle to, to um, learn more about women's history and, and important women in history. Oh, I was going to say that um, some of the best examples of that are by um, a British woman named Vera Britton, who was writing during World War, prior, prior and during and after World War I. So she did a series of books, Testament of Youth, um, Testament of Friendship, and I think there's a third. But they're her diaries, basically, and you get this amazing just a, an amazing you are there picture of what was going on in England during World War One. And I think that's what I'm looking for is that firsthand perspective. Mm -hmm. Give me the person who was there and let them tell the story for me. And, and you asked me the name of the book, um, uh, Berlin Diaries by Marie Vasilchikov. Sorry if I mispronounced that. A Russian princess in World War Two. We'll spell Caught it. in Germany. We'll Very spell it out later. Yeah. You know, the other thing, it, it remind, it, part of your question about is there literature that could do this today? One thing that this, our culture today seems to be so enamored of, rightly so, is the personal story. That's why we see the rise of the moth, radio hour, and all the things that are. The personal story has become the way which we are connecting to one another. And I think that's, that's a power that is, is yet really to be fully explored but it seems to be connecting people in ways that are unique. But don't, oh, go ahead, Laura. I was just gonna say, I mean, that's a really good point. I was just thinking, I had this great teacher in junior high school. I mean, I still remember him, that's how great he was. It was eighth grade, Ralph Hayes. And he's a local writer, and, and some of you may even know him. Um, but he was the best storyteller. I mean, he told history, but he told it in a way that like drug you into the scene and, and made it so real instead of just this happened on this date and spit that back on a test. But he told stories about what happened and, and I still remember them. And I'm way past eighth grade. <laughs> no, um, I, what I was going to say is that, yeah, I think there's so much emphasis on personal, you know, telling our personal stories like this American life or, um, or, or the moth radio hour, but there, it doesn't seem to me that, that it goes one step further and links it to, to bigger events. It, it's very hard for people to get out of their own skin and, and sort of say, you know, like how does, their, how does my life relate to the letter that the Republicans yeah. sent to <laughs> well, that would, well, that would be the next step, though. That would be the next step, wouldn't it? I mean, I, 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 I just am like, you know, how, how, what is that? Who is talking about that on our level? And, and, and that's part of our life. I mean, this is part of what's happening in our world, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Different mediums are doing, like Kevin Spacey's House of Cards is, is doing to politics what nobody has been able to do yet as far as to show how really shallow it is, but yet how it's really run. Like there's a lot of fact in what they do on that show, and it also just skewers the fact that it's so back-scratchy, you know? But also what you're saying is that's the power of the great autobiography, because they do do that. I, I met a guy named Bob Zellner, Robert Zellner, and I cannot remember the name of his book. He was the first white a field secretary for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. His father was a KKK member and his father quit because he had a transformation and Zellner followed in his father's footsteps. So here was another foot soldier whose story I didn't know and who was not that well known, who is still alive, still fighting, but he wrote his story, he wrote his book down. And so I guess that's where I'm hopeful about how literature is shaping our, our view of what's happening. Well, you know, the people who went to, to Mississippi to register voters during that Freedom Summer, um, 
we haven't had stories from them. I mean, now they're all in their 60s. That's probably is the youngest that they are now. And how interesting that would be to to have them look back on that, um, you know, and see how that experience shaped their lives. Knut uh, Berger, who is a friend of ours, and I met him yesterday and told him about where I was, and he said, well, do you know that Henry Aronson, the port commissioner and lawyer, Henry Aronson was one of those people who went down in the 60s, and there is a book that was written for young people called Three Who Dared, True Stories of Three Young Northerners Who Went South to Work in the Civil Rights Movement by Tom Cohen from 1969. And there's just an example of that. Those stories are coming out, but we need to hear more of them. Well, there's a whole group, of course, from the University of Michigan who, who, was going, who were going, and I was supposed to be one of those who went. And then, funny what memory does, because all of a sudden, I didn't go and I never could figure out why I didn't go. I mean, it was all, you know, these are my friends, we were all supposed to go, and, and then they went, and I didn't. And, and I have always, for many years, sort of blamed myself and said, you know, I was such a coward, I, I should have done, I should have gone. And then, just sort of out of the blue, years and years later, my father said, you know, well, I didn't let you go. He said, I told you that if you went, your mother would have a heart attack and die. And, and, uh, and you know, that, I mean, that like annoyed me, but it, it, uh, it, you know, wasn't my fault. So, I mean, but to hear from the people who did now contemporaneously would be so interesting. All right, Christy James, you get to wrap it all up for us. Oh, talk about <laughs> pressure. Um, I would say two authors, female authors, that kind of changed my world view of things was uh, Margaret Atwood, The Handmaid's Tale. And whenever I hear the voting stats and people not voting, I just want to give them that book and be like, you have to vote. It's so important. Um, and then Maya Angelou, who we haven't mentioned yet today, but her courage should be mentors for all of us. Um, and then personally, I read a lot of humor and I love to come across a funny, smart woman. So Lori Nataro, love her. Sarah Vowell, with her history lessons, right in there with her humor. I mean, she is one of my favorite. And Amy Poehler. And Amy Poehler, I think, is doing such a great job with Facebook and her Smart Girls section on Facebook and just using humor and bringing girls along with um, current world problems. Tell, tell me more about that. I don't know about that. Um, on Facebook, she has a, the Smart Girls. I think it's called Smart Girls, right? Smart Girls? Amy Poehler Smart Girls. And um, you get posts. I get put tons of posts from her. And it's just highlighting what women are doing all over the world. But she'll make funny little notations about it. And some of them are funny stories. And some of them are really, really important stories. Things um, that are happening in the Middle East and things that are happening in Europe and things that are happening right here and homelessness and all kinds of stuff. And it's just it's smart, but it's manageable. And you have a little bit of humor. So it kind of draws more people in. And she, I think she's doing a great job. It's the evolution of our culture, Nancy. See how it's evolving in different ways, different different ways of uh, getting people's words out. I think it's important what, what Christy was saying about she's adding humor to the situation and bringing people in in different ways that a lot of times, you know, the history, politics, people get overwhelmed. I used to work in politics six years and, you know, people want to make change and they want to have things be better, be different but they also don't feel like they can contribute sometimes on a world level. Um, and they also feel just really overwhelmed by the negative things happening in the world. So to have, so, you know, have things in little doses, sometimes add humor. I think that makes world news and women's role in the world a little bit more um, digestible. And I just also wanted to echo about Sarah Vell. I really do enjoy her uh, some of her history books, especially right, right now I've been hearing about things going on in the news about there in Arizona where they're trying to uh, uh, change legislation so that universities can't teach alternate history, etc. And some of the books that she's written about uh, the Pilgrim period, the, the wordy shipmates, etc. really have a way of filling in the gaps of things that, you know, stories that are so full of holes and she's plugging all those holes and in, um, in a literary sense and 
So I just sort of had a thought about addressing what Nancy asked about is there anything today that can kind of change the world? And I think over history and today too, and especially listening to this conversation, is that artists change the world. They have, they are incredibly creative. Um, I worked in the art, I'm not an artist, but I've worked in the arts field for 25 years and I've met a lot of artists in every genre. So I think as you're talking about theater and music and whether it's um, instrumental music or songs or poetry or storytelling or visual art or anything, those are the people who are taking creative risks and making people stop and think and maybe even shocking people, but helping us look at things in different ways. Did you want to say amen? I'll, I'll say amen, definitely. And I, I also wanted to add a name to the list, and it's, it's not under the historical fiction title, but I guess informative fiction, which sounds, it's called fiction, but um, Barbara Kingsolver and the way that she investigates ecosystems of, of the land she's talking about in, in uh, Poisonwood Bible or, or uh, Prodigal Summer, those two were amazing how what she understood about just the entire landscape of where she was and the dedication and the what ends up being a preservation of it or that you can't help but end up caring about what she's talking about because of the the way it feeds into the characters and what she's talking about. I think she's a really powerful writer. You've given us a whole year's worth of uh, books to read. This was really great. I, I guess, um, I guess you're, Roz, you're just much, you're so more optimistic than I am, um, which is good for, which is good for me to hear, so. Last words? Yes, can I grab the table? I just want to um, say all you people that are getting all these great new book suggestions, that means you need to weed from your shelves to clear space for the new books. So the Literacy Council, we do free um, language instruction to immigrants and refugees and native-born folks who can't get a job or can't help their family until they get their basic literacy skills. And so we do a June book sale, and we are right now looking for book donations. So. Come, give me all your old books, and then come back in June and fill up your shelves all again. So, so we either come to 8500 14th Avenue Northwest before, or we come here. I'll be the designated book carrier. So, and spread the word. We have fabulous books, fabulous prices, and all of it goes right out to, as I said, provide the free instruction to the folks in our community who don't have the basic literacy skills. And I know all you people believe that is key to everything so literacyseattle.org info at literacyseattle.org if you want more information or 206-233-9720 if you have a library that needs a pickup it's so large that's it that's it excellent thank you very much thank you thank you all thank you.